Welcome to Corona Stories, the place where people can be open and honest about their feelings and experiences of COVID, lockdown and related matters. I'm Christine Padgham and I co-host this podcast with my friend Sylvia. This podcast is not for profit, it will never be for profit and we are interested in hearing people's real views. We never censor and we are interested in all perspectives. Thank you for listening. I think even just keeping track of that is the kind of the networking virtually is quite hard, isn't it, to do? Really and I think, and, and I think, you know, I, I think one of the things that's odd about it too is that, you know, many of the things which um, I think those of us who've been really kind of quite appalled by the whole restrictions and well, social restrictions, lockdown, everything, one, one of the issues for those of us who like human beings, people just totally underestimate the the role that you know, touch and pheromones and 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 you know, facial um, interaction, all these things. These are kind of really the most ancient parts of the way in which we interact with other people, and they've all been cut off. That was just a wee taster of our conversation with Dr. Zenobia Stora, a psychologist. We spoke mainly about the topic of fear in the pandemic and she certainly brought us some amazing insights. I really hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Today is the 7th of September 2021 and I'm in my garden with Sylvia. Hello. And we're speaking to Dr Zenobia Stora. Hello Zenobia. Hello, hi Christine. What an absolutely tremendous name you have. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I've, I've spent I've spent most of my life explaining it to people. When I was younger, I used to I used to curse my mother for it, but I'm actually delighted that she gave it to me now. I'm really. I know Zenobia was a Syrian warrior princess, was she not? Yes, yes. You sent me a lovely um a lovely uh, uh, a book that you had about that. Yeah, she she was she was a um now I I always get this wrong. I think she's a third century, third century, um, it's either third or second um, AD warrior queen yeah. from Syria, queen oh, Syria now, yeah, Palmyra she was. I see and her. how apt, how apt, yes. Yes. you're one of our warriors as yes. well. she is a warrior. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe there was a, there was a purpose in giving me that name, exactly. <laughs> absolutely tremendous name. Um, yes, yeah, so what is it you do so I'm a um, I'm a child and adolescent clinical psychologist. And I used to I, well, I was in the NHS for, for years, and then I left in about 2000, the end of 2017, and I set up independently, which I'm so pleased that I did now for all sorts of reasons. I was pleased at the time, but I haven't had enough of working in the NHS. But I think, given what's happened over the last 18 months, it's been really good for me that I'm. I've been independent because I've been able to say and do pretty much what I like, you know, obviously within the bounds of my professional, um, you know, obligations and, and so on. Yeah. Um, I think that there are certain types of people who just wouldn't be suited to working in the NHS the last 18 months. No, I think it would. I, I, I don't actually... Um, have one of the things that I have being being independent I, I don't I don't have a practice I, I just it's myself 
and I, I do and I actually interestingly I, I do loads of NHS contract work so I'm brought back in but I'm kind of on my own terms which is quite nice so I was able to for example um so, so most of my work is I I work with children with autism and ADHD mainly assessing autism and um, supporting families with children with and young people with those conditions I do some therapy as well on the on the side and on the private as a private practice but most of my work is NHS contract work which is nice because it's kind of the best of both worlds because I like I really like the, you know the patients that you see in the NHS I like working within that environment but I just can work without you know the, the confines of too much of the confines of the, the structure as it were you know obviously I you know there are some some things but like for example so last May um I was desperate to get back to work you know they closed everything down and I was desperate to set up clinics again and I was able to do that so I've been seeing children face to face in NHS buildings since beginning of June last year whereas loads of the cancers that I work with you know will work around you know people are not yet seeing children face to face they're still virtual so it's quite um it's actually really odd actually particularly I was thinking this yesterday um you know in terms of you know this great big kind of uh and you know well, this, Going back on a on a Tory promise of the um, no no raising of taxes in the manifesto, and what on earth a hike in national insurance is going to do to save our NHS, so to speak. Interesting what you're saying about um, you haven't been able or you have been able to see people in the flesh, and other practitioners have not been able to. Yeah. Um, the importance of seeing people in the flesh, I think, has totally been forgotten about across the board in the NHS. In in terms of your work, what do you think gets lost in having to do online work? Well, that's really interesting because I just briefly before I answer that question, what I was going to say is the clinic I was in yesterday is a two-storey primary resource centre, so fully NHS fully funded by the taxpayer. I was the only person seeing patients on the top floor, and I reckon there were probably, I reckon there are 15 consulting rooms there. And that's quite common for me. That entire building's being run at the taxpayer's expense, and no one's in there seeing patients. Anyway, that's one thing. Really? So, um, you know, I'm not kidding you. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. I, I, that actually doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me at all. Um, you know, just even GPs, you know, family members who've tried to access various services. It's so impossible. It, you know, the, the natural conclusion of that is buildings must be empty. Well, that's what I was thinking. And I guess I was thinking that in the context of, you know, chucking more money at the NHS. I don't know whether it just, I don't know what's happening with it. But it doesn't, I mean, people come in and out occasionally, but generally speaking, those buildings are empty. There's just been an, an announcement made to staff. I haven't had this confirmed, but Glasgow Royal Infirmary, which is a huge hospital, is going to stop seeing patients face to face with immediate effect, oh like today. Seriously? Yeah. Why? Because because of the because of the spike in Scotland? Yeah. I mean, Glasgow Royal Infirmary is colossal. It's a mm. massive, massive building, and you just. I think they've got staffing problems and because of the spike in cases, but yeah. Here's the are, months on with 88% so, of the population so vaccinated. if we get back to the kind <laughs> yes. of original question. So I've got sorry. No, it's fine. We do that all the time. Well, I do. 
no, we all do. <laughs> actually getting back to, you know, what, what, what gets lost in a consultation online compared to seeing somebody in person or a child in person, do you think? Well, for example, so um, I guess two sorts of assessments that I was mainly doing before the pandemic and um, and generally speaking now, that's still my work. So um, assessments of children who may or may not have a, a um, neurodevelopmental problem like uh, uh, autism, um, and also children who are um, who are going through the the uh, family courts um, because they were under child protection plans and so on, and there were care orders out, and, and the court was deciding whether they would be removed from parents or so on. So I was doing a lot of um, assessments of attachment between parents and children, and um, obviously understanding uh, the nature of the way in which, uh, I guess, children have been impacted by trauma in their circumstances. Um, I cannot imagine how you can do that job online. I know that people do, and the people have been very resourceful, and I've got a huge amount of respect for the kind of the ability that many of my colleagues, I suppose, have had to, to, to develop ways in which you can do that stuff online. But I think, for me, that's always going to be a, a poor substitute. Like, for example, you take something, you take an issue around attachment, about relationships between parents and children. I mean, I, I just stopped doing that. I was doing that for courts. I was doing that uh, legal expert work um, for the family courts. And I had a couple of cases that were ongoing at the time that everything shut down in March and I was asked to move those assessments online and I just pulled out, which I'd never done before for court reports because you don't, you need to, but I just was not prepared to make statements about the nature of people's relationships with their families when I'd only ever seen them through a screen. Um, you know, all, all, the, all the, you know, the, the way in which you assess uh, relationships and dynamics between human beings, it comes down to really um, you know, little things. It's kind of passing things. It's kind of the way people look. It's the way people look at each other. It's the way people um, come into a room, out of a room. Like all those things. That's all information. Um, well, I, th I find that really interesting, Zenobia, because I used to work in child protection um, as a local authority solicitor, and you know. I remember social workers and things talking about children and even just little things like they had never met this child before and how that child related to them were they yes. overly familiar with them completely These are all little clues for them to build their assessment on oh. and to try and do that without that face-to-face -face, you know a, a camera you know a zoom consultation you know I I've done it myself. I choose the tidiest bit of my home. You can rig it to to be um, a very narrow picture. Um, and I would imagine that that is very true crossing over into your job. Absolutely. And I think that with um, the idea that particularly with families, you know, who are going through those um, going through those you know, really quite you know, really traumatic circumstances, you know, quite often those families are the most chaotic families and they're the families who are struggling most in lots of ways, including, you know, digital poverty, including, you know, chaotic homes, including um, space, you know, a lack of space for privacy within your home. Like the idea that you could interview a teenager about their relationship with their parents in their own home online. And I, I actually think that potentially puts them at risk. I mean, who knows who's listening? You can't control when you when you see a child 
or a young person in a therapeutic situation, you have control over the therapeutic space in the sense yeah, that yeah. you can you can organize as you want, you know who's in there, you know who's you know, and, and you can create a space in which a child or young person feels safe and that you can get a sense about whether or not what they're telling you is is accurate. Um, yeah. so I think that, that, that those issues are, you know, I find it very strange that um, it's become the norm in many camp services that yeah. um, that uh, therapy and interventions and um, assessments are delivered online. I think that's very odd. I mean, I always remember when we were doing court work, you know, if, if you had a child who was maybe a child victim of sexual abuse, you know, you actually used... Um, video technology to remove the child from the courtroom mm -hmm. because you didn't want them in the same room as the perpetrator because even if you put them behind a screen you know just a cough or you know the there can be so many little clues that you're in the presence of somebody else and that can totally alter um how a child conveys a story to you um, yes. So, oh, I mean, I can totally see how you cannot possibly find out the most intimate details of a child's situation when you don't know who's around them. No, I, I think the I think the other thing is you know, you you were mentioning before about the way a child greets you. I see for me, all my assessments start the moment I see the child in the waiting room. Go to the waiting room, meet the child with the parents. You notice everything. You notice the way in which. You know the child responds to you or doesn't respond to you when you come into the waiting room you notice the way in which the parent prompts the child to do whatever they need to do you notice their behavior and the, on the way down to the um you know the, the assessment room the way they walk the way that they comment on things the way they respond to you all of that stuff is, is clinical information and you don't get that if you just go straight into a, as you said you know a, a, an image on a screen where you know a, a child sitting facing you on a camera so yeah, I think yeah. um you know those those things um are definitely lost and those are really important yeah, yeah. and, um, and I mean, underestimated aspects of our work and even things like how a child you know are they slightly grubby are they malodorous yes. are they um you know well dressed do they look underweight now things like the proportions of a child can be lost on a screen because yeah. you've got nothing to measure it to whereas if you see them in the flesh you can think well actually in stature they're quite small for, oh, for their age and mm -hmm. you know they look very light or you know their clothes are hanging off you, you don't necessarily get that off a screen no you really don't do you i think i probably had that experience that, 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 it's funny you say that because that thing came that, that point came home to me, you know, when I went, I went to London recently for the Question Everything conference with him earlier in the summer. And I met a number of people that have been involved in, in you know, questioning a lot of these, these um, things that have been happening over the last 18 months. And uh, the, the thing that struck me most about meeting people you just met online is that you completely got in your head, you got their height wrong, haven't you? And their stature and the way that it's really interesting like how much you, 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 you kind of hadn't seen and didn't know about people that you'd met. But you're right, when, in, in, that's one thing and socially. But for clinical work, that's so important. And, um, you know, all of that information when you're working with children and young people around, you know, your relationship with them and child protection and all of those things, I think so much is undermined by an online experience and I think the other thing that has frustrated me I mean it was the same with you know the ed education I know that the defense of the department of education for young people has been oh well we've offered top quality you know online learning and, and this is how they justified the fact they closed the schools even though I think most parents would question that but the the, the issue is 
um, that concerns me is this assumption that it's an even vaguely adequate substitute, you know, either through education for young people, but, you know, obviously, again, the assumption being that we've continued offering services to children online. I mean, I know a number of children who haven't wanted online services and as a result of that so I'm talking teenagers they just didn't want it they didn't want to engage online and as a result they were discharged from camps. Talking to a parent the other day of a, a young person who's really really concerning because he's, he's so Zenobia just in case some of our, our listeners aren't aware what what can you tell people what CAMS is? Oh yes yeah, sorry I'm, I'm speaking in acronyms um so CAMS is the child and adolescent mental health services so that's yeah. the, that's the, the genetic term that's used to describe the waiting the list to get into CAMS in the first place is not insignificant. Yeah and it's not just the waiting list it's also the criteria um, yeah. which is you know sky high generally so it's very difficult for people to access the mental health service. And you know to have gone through that long wait and to be ill enough to qualify to then just be discharged because you don't want to be seen online is such a travesty that that child's needs are not being met. I, I think so. I, I you know, I, for example, I was talking to a mum the other day that I actually assessed the child last year, and um, he he he's very isolated. He's a, a young a young person with with autism, um, lots of anxieties, you know, secondary to the autism, and pretty much isolated within his home, all made worse by lockdown, all this sort of stuff. Um, yeah. And I hadn't caught up with her for a while. She phoned me up to ask. Know, whether I could assist um he hadn't seen he still hadn't seen so so that was you know I, I assessed him last summer and he was so you know he was on the, the wait he was on the um on the uh, on roll for cams but um only being offered uh online therapy but wouldn't take it and he still hadn't seen anybody so his mum they hadn't he hadn't been discharged but his mum was getting you know consultation phone calls but he had had nothing for it and no one had been out to see him and you're thinking, how extraordinary, you know, we, yeah. you know, really, really vulnerable young person that's just been left and just you roll that out and you multiply it. And, and, and the poor mum as well, you know, who's struggling with a home situation and just feeling alone, I would imagine. That... Yeah, and I, I just don't understand it because particularly now, I mean, he, you know, I, I, I assessed him in his family home last year during lockdown because I made that assessment by... I thought it was necessary. I thought it was clinically um, uh, required that he, he he should be seen, and that I could go into the family home as safely as possible using all the precautions, but see him, so that at least I'd seen him. Um, but I think that lots of lots of clinicians within CAMS don't are not able to make that decision. Obviously, I'm an independent psychologist. I could make that risk assessment for myself, discuss it with the family, and do it. But you know, clearly, I mean, I, what I find very strange is that we're now in. September 2021 and clearly it's still not possible despite the fact that all the restrictions have been dropped in this particular healthcare service it's still not possible until just about now for children to be seen. It's despicable really and it's and it's just one of the gazillions of examples of how we have completely lost our way as a society and I don't know what would happen if all psychologists said screw this I am going to see my patients. I'm not quite sure what the ramifications would be, but um, that's really what's going to have to happen. To I, I, I think so. I, I guess I, I'm I'm I, I'm kind of because I'm out of the the system of NHS management. I don't know what people are 
I'm not being told what they are allowed to do and, and so on. Um, it seems to me that, you know, I, I'm very much somebody who believes in vocation. I believe that, you know, I think that's the same with, I have the same view of teachers, I think teachers have the same view as well, that, you know, you, you, you train in a particular role and part mm -hmm. of that role is whether you're working as a teacher or a, a child therapist or whatever you're doing, that you are, your training and your obligation is to offer services to young people and you can do that in you know safely but you can make clinical judgments and that should be your priority yeah. and so the idea I, that you don't I find that very strange I could never understand that can I ask you Zenobia you know because I did do a bit of work in in mental health work but also I always well my understanding of mental health issues is that often if things are not treated the longer they go on the less treatable they become and so actually for young people not to be getting their proper treatment mm. early on can have very long-term ramifications oh no absolutely i think early early intervention is, is is most certainly what's required and also what we do know is that uh, over half of um lifelong mental health conditions begin in mid-adolescence, by mid-adolescence, the beginning childhood or by mid-teenage years. So, you know, you're talking really quite serious, really yeah. quite devastatingly serious consequences of failing our, our young people as we have been. I think, you know, I'm sure that you're aware that we prior, prior to the pandemic, we were supposedly in crisis, mental health yeah. services were in crisis for young people. So now we're in an absolutely extraordinary situation. Yes. The amount of pressure we put on on young people and, and, the, and the figures that have come out about young people's mental health and health deterioration. We're going to lose children to um, either lifelong mental ill health or they'll commit suicide. We're going to see loads and loads and loads of people in that bracket and we as a society have done that to them. That's it. And we're all culpable actually. Well I've been doing my best. I know we are. <laughs> um, but but yeah. this is all yeah. stuff we like we talk about this stuff on Corona Stories all the time, and this is a road well travelled for us. And um, what when I, you and I spoke, Zenobia, the first time person to person last week, we were having a conversation about fear, mm. and we decided that that's what we should concentrate on for this podcast. We could always have you back to hear about how dire the situation is for our adolescents. <laughs> yeah. um, but we're trying. Well, I'm certainly trying to develop a more positive mindset yeah. because I've realised that I'm in this for the long haul. This is a decades-long problem we're creating for ourselves in all sorts of ways in our society. So we were talking about the fear mm. and the effect that that's had on people, like the fear of coronavirus and how people have gone a bit, they've become a bit kind of obsessive about coronavirus and we've actually had an outbreak recently here in our area it's all mm. going and it's quite astonishing the way that people are behaving with the testing and the you know, testing any child that moves yeah blame blaming it's always oh so and so is tested positive well, who where did they see who, who did he catch it from and all this stuff? But not in a, oh, well, where did they get that from? Oh, right, yes. yes. But more in a kind of, well, they shouldn't have been with them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know. 
so yeah, but yeah, that's yeah, that's bizarre, isn't it? Because never before, I don't think in that. Not, well, I guess I should say never before. Maybe in the in the dark days in the eighties, before there were more sensible approaches to HIV, there were maybe some of that. There was some of that narrative, wasn't there, around blame of people with infectious disease? But it's very dispiriting to see it, isn't it? This um, um, this uh, approach to to other people and the view that. You know, infectious disease, which is a normal part of, of, of human, you know, life. You know, sadly, you obviously can manage manage things to a degree in a sensible way, but it should be uh, so moralised in this awful way. But um, no, I, I think so. Just talking about the, the fear, I think that that's really interesting. You saying that you're seeing that that revived again in in, in Scotland, and I expect we're going to have to see a resurgence next in the next few weeks here as people get all panicky about numbers once the schools have had their impact. Mm. I don't think it's really infections in schools that are driving or increasing uh, cases. No. Um, I think it's, like you say, there's a lot of it is test, like the more testing you do, the more cases you're going to find. And the thing that amazes me is that people seem to be so comfortable in this sort of panicky state. Because to me, I would have thought, maybe I just have a shorter attention span than most people, but I was getting pretty bored with being worried about covid mm-hmm. like by june 2020 um, yeah what do you think as a psychologist i always imagine psychologists must understand everything about human behavior instantly when they see it <laughs> <laughs> i wish <laughs> um, you can have a stab sometimes but uh no, it's interesting you say that about um about fear too because i i was i was thinking i think any emotion uh, you know, you you can sustain it for a certain amount of time, can't you? And then it then it then it loses its impact. And I think with with uh, with anxiety, for example, anxiety always goes up, and then it must come down, doesn't it? And that's when you're working with people who um, have anxious um, anxiety disorders, then you are teaching them to sit with exposure to the thing that they're afraid of, um, with the the knowledge that they will. Um, be able to cope with that anxiety whilst it's high but anxiety will come down and the more that they do that they desensitize themselves to to whatever it is they're afraid of and then eventually they feel very little anxiety that's how you deal with anything like dog phobia or you know any kind of anxiety disorder um so i think that you're right and the thing about coronavirus you think that actually um you know there's a point at which people can't really keep up the fear there has to you know the, the anxiety must must become um you must become desensitized to it to some degree and i think that is actually it's interesting it's, I, i'm wondering about you know, because the, the, it sounds like obviously there's a spike in scotland there's a maybe a kind of resurgence of fear around that with that you know that corresponds with that, that that spike i mean it's been interesting here over the last few weeks i've been feeling a little bit more positive because i've seen less masks i've seen less sort of neurotic behaviors in the street and i have i am just wondering whether you know at the present whether the, we, we have reached a point where people are actually just generally speaking thinking do you know what uh, you know I can't actually sustain this level of anxiety much longer I mean I guess it like, can be whipped up again but you know I, I think it's quite an interesting sort of paradigm that we're in though here because what I noticed is that whilst people vocalize this fear and this blame actually when you talk to people about what they're doing in their lives they're living pretty normally mm. and quite easily happen to them, you know. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. 
Yes, I think that's true. And also, actually, I think that you, you kind of tend to, well, because we've got attentional bias, you tend to notice the people, don't you, in the plastic gloves, and you tend to hear, you know, you, you, you hear those voices um, because they're amplified on, on mainstream media too. But actually, when you speak to most people, I don't think, I'm not seeing masses of anxiety anymore. I'm seeing some with people maybe who have more reason to, to, to feel a little bit more afraid, but I'm not hearing it generally but when I when I for example amongst the going back to school you would think reading the BBC that all the parents in this country are absolutely petrified about the children catching coronavirus I don't I, I maybe it's just the schools my children go to I've not noticed anybody being particularly worried um but maybe they are but then on the other hand um I think most children are still being encouraged to test I mean out of my children I mean I was my two girls were the only two from their friendship group that didn't go in for the testing this week so, you know, that's still going on, isn't it, for most people? Um, so there's stuff, there's stuff like that happening. But one of the things I was just thinking, one of the things we were discussing, Christine, last week is what I think is really interesting is that, you know, what we've all thought about, I mean, lots of us in mental health thought of and observed with quite astonishment, you know, some, some astonishment that the levels of anxiety and COVID anxiety that we've seen around us um, from people who, you know, really have... Um, maybe only had access to mainstream media and, and maybe not seen things as we have in terms of you know the risk assessment and, and so on. <laughs> but something that I've been thinking about, because I took some time off over the summer a little bit, stepped back a bit, because I was just actually feeling really, really stressed actually by the whole thing. And, and having had that time over the holidays, I have actually realised how frightened I've been. And not frightened by coronavirus, because I I just have never really particularly felt frightened by it. Obviously, I can see that it is a, a really nasty respiratory condition and that you know, that people, lots of people have died from it and lots of people have been really, really ill with it. But it's not frightening to me because I look at the information and I think there's lots of frightening things in this world, really. But what I realise has frightened me has been um, what I've observed in terms of... Um, the practices of government in terms of the authoritarianism in terms of the direction of this country in terms of um the future of our young people i i i don't think i'd quite appreciate it i stress back about how traumatic i found this year <laughs> and it has and actually that i've also been pretty much you know in a state of terror a lot of the time and that's an increasing terror over from about summertime last year when it, I just thought it was so obvious that things would become more sane and then it never did and then it got worse and worse and worse um, and then also because I think those of us who've been really concerned and trying to speak out about this stuff I think we talk to each other all the time but I think that we in a similar way to people who are very frightened of coronavirus we do a lot of sharing of very scary stories and I think we frighten each other and then we end up being immobilized and and in a state of you know, well, maybe not all of us, but I certainly have had times when I felt kind of almost immobilised by, by the 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 size of the um, you know the problem and um, and my fear for the future. And then you think, actually, that's interesting. I mean, that's something that I hadn't hadn't really appreciated how how that actually I've had that in common with all those people who've been scared of coronavirus. And we've all been scared of something. Is what I was saying. You know something you know, di different slant, but you know, I think there's high levels of fear all around. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, um, no, I, 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 I completely agree with that. You know, people can be not concerned about coronavirus, but can be 
afraid of losing their job, um, mm-hmm. afraid of their businesses going down the drain, um, afraid of becoming an outcast from society because mm-hmm. they get vaccinated. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. I think, I, I wonder, like I spoke at the media gathering at Hollywood um this year and I said that you know that the one thing that everybody in Scotland has in common is they've been fearful and I felt like real deep terror actually about where we're going Mm -hmm. um as a society but I think I think I've now also been desensitized to that because like you know what you're saying about your patients there that's like what you said in the first half hour or the first 20 minutes or so I used to hear stuff like that and it made the hairs in the back of my neck stand on end and I yeah and now I've I it's like yeah I know this is happening it's terrible yeah yeah but I think and I think that's where the anger comes in because you've got people on one side who are really scared of COVID and they don't want to catch mm. SARS-CoV-2 and they get really angry with people who they see as being irresponsible who might be spreading it. And mm. then on our side, we're really fearful about where we're going yeah. as a society. And I'm sorry, I have I did start to get really quite angry with people who wouldn't see that. Yeah. I, I, no, I, I, I did, I did too. I'm really divisive. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think it's interesting you describing that process because I think you recognise that in other people. You say you're frightened of different things to, to you, but um, and to me. But um, I, I did exactly the same thing. It's taken this summer because I've kind of been I feel like actually it's only when I took, took two weeks off that I realised that I've been fighting since last last August, mm-hmm. and as well as you know trying to you know keep my family going and have a job and everything. And but you know, fighting something that's so huge and completely out of my control that actually I kind of just need to step back and think, what am I actually doing here and what what can I actually do? It's kind of really basic stuff, isn't it? It's like what actually can I influence? What can I do? And also we, like, we had just... a chat about this at the weekend, didn't we, Christine? Because I was saying that I genuinely at the weekend felt like I was living in the twilight zone. In fact, at one point I thought I'd maybe died and this was some sort of purgatory that I, my soul was in and this couldn't all be real. Um, it was actually very surreal. I was painting at the time, so it could have been paint fumes, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we, we were having a chat about, you know, this this feeling of, you know, just how unreal this all is and how scared we all are and it's it's all very surreal isn't it no 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 no, it is it is and I think that um I think it is important one of the things that as as a mental health professional maybe not even as a mental health professional you'll have done the same you know throughout your lives anyone who's sensible and grounded to some degree you know and the stuff that you tell your kids, isn't it? That you know it's important to take time to step back and reflect. And actually, I think that uh, it's been so surreal, and I've been so astonished. And and you know, I guess in a kind of you know, like you know, the kind of trauma model of uh, you know, flight or freeze or you know, the fight. You know, these 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 um, responses to um, to uh, terrifying stimuli is that 
I've been so caught up in that, I actually haven't done much reflecting in terms of yeah. what am I actually doing and, and where are we going? And, and, and like you're saying about the kind of real recognising that pattern in yourself that felt that you went through maybe, I mean, I did a kind of disbelief when I look back and then anger for a long time and then a kind of biting mode. And then maybe this summer there's more of an acceptance, I guess, that like you said, um, I think I think it's Christine who said it's a kind of an acceptance of where we're at and then from here what do we do about it and how do you kind of keep your emotions steady and regulated so that you can actually be useful because you well, can't be useful is, to anyone can you when you're in a, in a, in a state of action this was something else we were kind of thinking about in terms of you know as you say feeling like you're fighting but who are you fighting because it's almost like this invisible force and it doesn't seem to matter what you say or what you do the outcome doesn't change and then we were looking back in history mm. and you were thinking about people like the jews in the second world war yeah. was there actually anything that they could have done to change the outcome and the answer is probably not yeah um, you know black people in apartheid in south africa you know did they actually have the power to do anything or do you just have to ride in history but I think you don't know what effect they had because they did fight it and that might have brought it to an end sooner on the other end. You can't just lie, like what, we, what we've been, I feel like our fear is a bit more justified on our side because all of the predictions that we have made have come true yeah. and all of the predictions that the other side have made have not come true. And we know that all the measures like lockdown and masks and tests and all that, they don't work. It doesn't yeah. achieve anything. So we, I think we are the righteous side, but the problem is that the most of society does not want to hear what we're saying. And that's part of the contract of being a human being living in civilization, isn't it? That you've just sort of got to go with the majority. And if the majority decides to oppress you, well, there's not really an awful lot you can do about it, except keep making your point. And then uh, uh, and, and, that one day that it gets heard and realised. Yeah, yeah. And then I think within that, isn't it? It's how how do you then identify what you can protect and yes. what is actually what are the things that are most important to you in terms of um, you know holding dear and holding um, you know holding um, safe. And I think you know how do you protect your children if you have children? That's a big issue for many of us, isn't it? How do you, um, how do you, and I, for me, I think the things like, for example, like for this, like this, maybe this sounds, would sound, I think you would understand it, but I think people, many people I know who just think I'm making a massive fuss about masks don't get it. But I actually just think these things are indignities. I think that they are, I, I can't wear a mask in a shop because I think it is so undignified for human beings to be forced to engage in completely nonsensical behaviour that restricts mm -hmm. breathing and I'm not prepared to do it because I, I just it, it's it's beneath me to do it and I think it's beneath everybody to do it to be honest so I, I, I completely agree and like wearing a mask makes me feel unwell now when yeah. I before we mandated it in Scotland on the 10th of July 2020 I was wearing masks because I thought they probably worked and I didn't really think too much about it I just wore one it made me feel ill but they're also, like you say, incredibly undignified. It's so difficult to have a conversation. It's your your face is your identity. It's how people recognise you. And, and also, I've, and I've if you, if said you, many times it affects your visual perception as it well. Does. 
You know, also, if you don't believe it, if you don't believe, if you if you've read enough to know that they're not actually making a difference anyway, then it's like I read somebody saying the other day, it's like you were told that you know you woke up and you found it was mandated to to wear a snorkel around Sainsbury's. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah, you know, it's 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 just undignified because it's nonsense, and, and I'm not going to dictate to me, you know, what um, that I should something on my face which as you say is an integral part of me and my ability to communicate with other people around me which I actually value hugely um so I'm not prepared to do it so it's things like this isn't it so I'm thinking what what can I do and those are those 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 individual battles that you can fight and make a difference and, and actually at least you can feel better you know what I mean you can come out of the shop and even though I've not sort of brought down totalitarianism I feel like I've maintained my human dignity and I've maintained my principles and I've stood up for the things that <laughs> I think are important, which is that people should be able, that children in the shop should be able to see my face, that they should know that I'm not afraid, you know, that all of those sorts of things, that, that matters to me. So I think that this issue around you know, what, what do we do now? I think I think it is a lot of small things, isn't it? There's, there's lots of little things that make I, I One of the things that occurs to me about masks is how much society's view on covering your face has changed in such a short time. I mean, if you think back in not long ago, before the pandemic, people were afraid of hoodies and people no. that had their hoods over their faces because you couldn't see their identity mm -hmm. and they were up to no good. Now, yeah. the reality is now that if anybody wants to commit a criminal offence, they're quite difficult to identify because all they need is a blue surgical mask and they look the same as everybody else. Yeah, all of a sudden covering your face is, is the good citizen behaviour, isn't it? And just um, that yesterday, I think it was, I saw a news article that the Scottish government is tightening up the law on masks. Oh, yes. So they're going to make it, um, you can be fined £10,000 and imprisoned for a year for abusing staff for trying to make you wear a mask. And, I mean, of course... <laughs> I've had a couple of incidents with masks in shops where I've been, I've been abused and I've reported it to the police. The police couldn't care less. So I, I think we know which direction the law will be applied. Because mm -hmm. there's existing laws to say that you don't need to, you, you know, there's exemptions for these things. Yeah. But um, the, this article, it was in a reasonably reputable newspaper and it was just like we need to bring in this law because people need we need to tighten up on this um, non-compliance with mask wearing and masks are such an important measure you know yeah. to defeat and it's like no they're not they no. don't work how can you still be saying this no and then they still and you know and i was seeing that um yesterday with the with the return to schools i saw various um comments just just without any you know there's there's no qualification for them at all. It's just it's just now, um, you know, recited just how isn't it the that on the BBC website that they are just a fact. They're an important measure in in fighting. But they're um, not. Which they're not, are they? It's just why and, and, and teachers saying that. I mean, letters from my children's school saying the same thing. You know that we will maintain them because they are an important part in in preventing transmission. I was thinking, no, they're not. It's quite interesting because I used to wear a mask and I really struggled with it. I really struggled it. So I just wore one of those thin buffs rather than a proper mask. Um, Which was totally acceptable and totally ineffective. 
effective and ineffective. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, but except so people were fine with it. And but then, you know, I had some anxiety issues, oh. and suddenly, I just felt really ill when I wore them. If you're kind of hyperventilating, trust me, the last thing you want is something mm. over your face. And um, so I I stopped wearing it. You know, I have my lanyard. That. Um, because I really struggle and I, I don't feel well if I wear a mask. And, um, you know, I was talking to my dad at the weekend and I was saying to him, oh, you know, we've got a lot of cases locally. And he said, uh, well, for God's sake, start wearing a mask. And I said, well, I can't wear a mask. And anyway, masks don't work. And he said, well, why are we wearing them then? And I was like, I actually don't know how to answer that question for you because that is a very good question why are we why are we still doing any of it like i think washing your hands doesn't work wearing a mask doesn't work getting tested twice a week is it achieves absolutely nothing there's lots of things i know that when i took my i took my car in this morning to get it sorted out and, and the amount of measures that were, were involved with it was lovely i love my my book addict is great but the amount of measures that were involved with um sanitizing of surfaces and i'm just watching this thinking but this was last year we knew that this wasn't an issue you still you know, disinfecting my key before it gave it back to me and was disinfecting the door handle of the car before and taking everything away himself and disinfecting and you're thinking no this is just going to carry on isn't it this is no, it's completely but, ineffective is it what is this relationship between blame and fear this is you know something that i kind of struggle with because it's like every time something doesn't work and the problem persists it's like the government changes the spotlight onto whatever group that they can blame now so you know we've got a spike so let's blame the very few people who don't wear a mask very very yeah and it's just it's the same isn't it because it's the obsession with this actually very small part of the population that's not wanting to be vaccinated as well it's yeah. uh you, you would have thought it would just be time to move on but no i, I think you know I, I think it's it's a it's a, about as ancient as you get in terms of human behavior isn't it that you know that fear brings scapegoating doesn't it, it brings but, um that's the danger that we've been trying to communicate with our friends who don't agree with us for so long that like I remember when I started I really jumped into COVID mitigations skepticism um last summer because I know a bit about mass screening and I just knew that the way that we were doing screening for COVID was so bad like so wrong it was like mm-hmm. upside down everything about it was wrong and I started sort of jumping up and down about that and people looked at me they're like yeah but you know does it really matter don't worry about it it'll be fine it'll all go away and they kind of dismissed my concerns but I suppose without me even realizing it myself what I was saying was if you want to identify disease this is exactly the wrong way to go about it and this is the thing then you know the whole thing sort of unraveled for me from that point on but that's the thing it's like we'll do lockdown but lockdown doesn't work and so when cases go up it's like well people obviously aren't locking down hard enough and some people breaking the rules and you know we'll wear masks but that doesn't work so be those like one in a thousand people 
didn't wear a mask in Aldi. We vaccinated all the vulnerable, we vaccinated the elderly, we vaccinated all the middle-aged. We still have a problem. Oh, it's those anti-vaxxer under 40s that are now the issues. Yeah. The ones we're trying and, to get vaccinated. And, and, and even, in, even in the face of increasing evidence that transmission, you know, is, is not... I'm going to say something which I'm fine, feeling is absolutely not controversial any longer. The more you vaccinate a population, the more SARS-CoV-2 spreads. The evidence is in, Zenobia. It only, vaccination makes it worse. And so our solution to this surge in cases is we're going to have vax passports and try and coerce as many people to get vaccinated as possible, which is a medical ethical outrage just in and of itself. But it's not going to work. The more people we vaccinate, the more SARS-CoV-2 we're going to see. And then it'll go circular. And then it'll be like, oh, well, there must be still a couple of people that aren't vaccinated. Let's just lock them up. You know, let's quarantine them forcefully. There's there's never an end. If If you're not following the truth and you're following lies, then... You're just going to get into an, an, a spiral. Yeah, of and it's like once, once they've achieved their aims <laughs> in that, like, you know, oh, we've now got lots more people vaccinated in the under 40s. Let's swing back to the non masked. And yeah. once we've addressed that, uh, and then there's just, but we're when, not, when we're, is the point where we just go, this is nature and we can't fight it. No. Well, they, they, they make those sounds, but they're very, there's, no, there's nothing that follows through for it, do they? They, they talk about, and they have done for months, living with, you know, these, this, this, this phrase comes up, doesn't it? But there's no, there's no correspondence in the policy that, that actually is what they're planning to do. They don't seem to have the, uh, and, you know, and it's, as you, you know, quite a few people have observed, it's not an original observation, but it's very strange, isn't it, that, you know, the very people who have all their faith pinned in the vaccine don't seem to have any faith in it. You know, if they really believe that the vaccine is the way forward, then, then naturally we should all be getting on with our lives, shouldn't we? Yeah. But the thing is, they were believing a lie. That's what I'm saying. The, the vaccine, we, I, I knew in October the vaccine wasn't going to be the solution just by talking to a couple of immunologists. But people were following this lie that the vaccine was going to be the answer. And that's how we've got to this point here. Yeah. Um, yeah, if you look back at our podcast from January, we were saying the vaccine I won't was work. Constantly saying, <laughs> I don't get this. It doesn't confer sterile immunity. No, this is no. a disaster. And, you know, it's like, well, we're now seeing how that's played out, but people still don't get it. No, it's an illusion. Well, the language, isn't it? I mean, you think that the, I keep seeing this in, uh, in, in, you know, the mainstream media reports. I mean, they use the word inoculated all the time. You're not yeah. it's, like, it's not inoculation, is it? And I'm not, but that's it's not, is it? So if we inoculate enough people, it's like, well, you're not. You're just preventing them from, you know, but, some of them. And I've always campaign like we eradicated smallpox with the smallpox vaccine. Well, the smallpox vaccine gave sterile immunity. This does not. You're not going to achieve the same result. No. And I, it shouldn't ever have been called a vaccine because it's not a vaccine. It's a therapy. It's a gene therapy. And so when people hear vaccine, they hear, oh, I'll get injected with this stuff and then I'll... And, you know, that's just not been the case. But the question is, how do we move on from this fear then of what's coming? Because I am my dark... I mean, I honestly do think that I'm going to be squeezed out of society because I just will not have this gene therapy injected into me. I can see all sorts of scenarios um, yeah. where life's going to be really difficult. But I, ha- I do feel like I've released the fear of it a little bit I think because we've got to such a bad situation now and the future does look so bleak 
that yeah. I almost don't feel it any longer. <laughs> no, and I think I think you're right. It's this, and I, again, I think you know, um, it is. It's, it's the desensitisation of it, isn't it? I think having been through this journey, that you kind of get to a point where you, it's like there is acceptance, isn't there? There's an acceptance that. I think you used the expression the other day when we spoke, Christine, you said that you kind of accept you're going to be living in a prison of some kind or another, um, you know, varying degrees. And and I think I'd probably share that view too. And I, I think probably what, you know, what we need to, to do, isn't it? Because, you know, you're talking about something I was discussing with another therapist the other day. If we're thinking about a sort of trauma model, which is, um, you know, when, when you kind of have a think that actually... You know, there's been a lot of, I think amongst sceptics, there's been quite a lot of disparaging comments made. I've, I've been thinking about this recently, and I think I've probably been guilty of this too at times, made of people who are very frightened of of COVID, you know, in terms like bedwetters and so on, and, and, you know, kind of quite dismissive remarks about people who are frightened or have been victims of a very aggressive yeah. campaign of government. Um, but I, I do actually think that, you know, we, we, we kind of, amongst a skeptic population of I quite I don't like to kind of talk kind of going against what I'm trying to say is we're talking yeah. groups and aren't we? So I'm sort of presenting a bipolar position which I, I know isn't the case but just for the sake of ease just to say because I think that actually there's there's a there's a lot of over fear amongst those of us who are trying to object to this as well. Not 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 because it isn't terrifying because it is it is but I think that actually it's just not helpful, is it? And actually, we do need to get to the point where you can step back and 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 go from that position. So when you so so when you're looking from a kind of psychological point of view of of let's say a model of anxiety, you're looking as I was saying before about those 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 responses that people have. Typically, human beings have fear, so that we we freeze, we 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 run away, we flight. Um, there's fight, um, and then the other one is. Um, Kind of less well known as fawn, which is actually what most of the population are doing, which is you know uh, just rolling over like a dog does the legs in the air and saying go on then, you know. So those four kind of Fs, those those four responses, are how people respond to extreme stress. And I think we've all been doing that, whether we've been frightened of you know COVID transmission and and, and dying of COVID ourselves, or we've been afraid of what we see society doing. Um, and actually what, so there's a, there's a therapist um, who, who is very uh, well-known uh, um, and influential therapist called Dan Siegel, who, who works in the area of attachment and trauma. And he talks about this window of tolerance, which is in the middle of those. Okay, so you've got those, you imagine those four things around those four kind of states. And then when you're in those states, you can't self-regulate. You can't manage the ebb and flow of, of emotional um, experience and you can't manage the ebb and flow of information coming through you're just in a state of terror and you're just dis dysregulated emotionally and I think mm -hmm. I've probably been like that actually looking back at times um, but we've got to kind of move to a point where we can we can which I think comes with acceptance isn't it it's that it's that kind of point of tolerance where you can you can be mindful and aware of what's going on around you that you can cope with and regulate the emotional input and the onslaught of information. Um, yeah. And I think, does that make sense? People should be able to trust mainstream media. Hmm. It's not, you know, it traditionally was a trusted source of information. Hmm. And so the fact that they haven't maybe cottoned on to the fact that maybe everything that they say is not gospel, we should have some empathy and sympathy for that. Yeah, 
Um, and one but of they the need things... to have some sympathy with us as well. Well, this is what I was going to say. Oh, one of my things is, and I, I kind of started implementing it last year, was that I didn't want to fall out with anybody about this. We have to have some sort of unity about this. And, you know, I'm sure Christine will recognise when I say, quite often I say to people, well, we will just have to agree to disagree on this. I'm yeah. not going to try and persuade you. You're not going to persuade me, but it doesn't matter. We can still be friends. We can talk about the usual stuff. We can talk about what the kids are doing, what that funny phrase that they used the other day, or, you know, we we don't have to totally segregate all the time. And And I do think that we have to sow those positive seeds yes. of unity. Yes, I, I, I absolutely agree. I, th I think, and I think that comes from when you're looking for points of connection. Because when we've been so divided, and you know, I, like like you, Christine, I've, and, and I, I felt really angry with people. I have felt very angry with people for acquiescing. Actually, I know that's a really infantile state. Actually, looking back <laughs> to do to, to feel, but I, I think that I have because I think, for example, you know, I I really felt that because I was so upset when the masks. Um, well, they, they made no sense at all when they were brought in last summer in this in this country. Um, but I couldn't understand why everybody acquiesced to them. So one day nobody was wearing them, and the next day when it became law, they did, whether they thought they worked or not. And and then then when I got to March and my children were were made to wear masks in the classroom, I felt really angry with so many people because I just felt it's only because you've acquiesced this one that now our children are. And yeah. I did say that to a number of people, and actually, I think it wasn't very helpful in terms of my relationship with a number of people. So, but yeah, I, I think that that whole kind of process of feeling angry actually, I, I think I need to be in a better place of actually connecting and trying to find what we do have in common, whether that is actually fear, even though we're afraid of different things. It's that understanding that actually everyone's been through a really traumatic year, and you know, whether they've been terrified by a, a lying mainstream media. Or whether they've been terrified by realizing that the mainstream media is lying and knowing all sorts of other things, you know, we have actually all been on a journey, haven't we? As oh, as neighbors, what I've noticed though is that I recognize the fear in the people who are complying with all the rules and feeling scared of COVID. I recognize the fear in them, but they don't recognize the fear in us. They can't see it. Mm -hmm. They just think no. that we're being ridiculous or I, and they think we're being childish. But again, I feel that if we try and keep that door open, you know, I've noticed recently talking to some people because I don't know if they were totally aware of my views. I mean, obviously they can see that I'm not masked or whatever, but I've, I've not tried to preach at anybody. But, you know, suddenly people are talking about things and, you know, these people that I know are really staunchly following the rules and always have and believe in it start saying little things about oh I don't think this makes sense or you know that doesn't make sense or how can we continue with this indefinitely and you know I think there are points of unity to be found. Yes I, I think so and I think particularly as this goes on I think people are I mean I, I'm actually I am feeling maybe it's because the, the weather's nice and my children are all back at school today I, I feel, I am feeling a little bit more confident, or a little, not confident, but a little bit more optimistic in the sense that, you know, just as you're saying that you think there's a, 
you know, talk about desensitization, I think that there's only so long that people can be afraid of anything, really. You know, um, you know you've got to live your life. And, and I think that that's the same for all of us, no matter what we're scared of. So that's um, that's um, coming to. Um, I lost my train of thought. What were you saying, Sylvia? You just said something that was interesting. Um, I was just talking about finding the points of unity. Yes. People are, you know, maybe beginning who have been staunchly following and believing are starting to say, well, this doesn't make sense or how do we continue with this? And yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so that, yeah, so that's what I'm saying too. So actually, I think there are people questioning now, I think, because it is so absurd, isn't it? So I think so, so for, so for many of us, I think we've, we've, kind of we've been on a long journey. Maybe we were there a while ago, but there are lots of people who are just now saying this doesn't make sense i think you're right in different ways or you know that and so i certainly my relationship my from a personal experience my conversation with people um that who i've disagreed with have have been i'm probably partly on a conscious effort on both of us to kind of both parts to kind of you know find unity too and, and not and not not to sacrifice a friendship over something like this but i think there are natural points of of togetherness actually I think that people are they essentially everyone's sick of it aren't they at the end of the day everyone is going to be people are either sick of it already or they're getting there yeah um, and and I think that if you know we get I I, I and because we have a government that basically operates like a weather day, you know, dependent on opinion bills I do feel a little bit more hopeful I don't know whether people will tolerate much more I'm kind of interested in that maybe yeah. you disagree yeah. Well, you know, I sometimes think it's a bit like freedom of speech. You know, I might not agree with what you say, but I will agree with your right to say it. And, you know, I might not agree with masks, but maybe I have to respect the right of people to choose for themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, I, 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 that's, that's, not, that's not what you've been... That's not what anti-maskers, which I proudly call myself to be one, that's not what I object to. If, if I had met somebody who wanted to wear a mask three years ago, I'd have been fine with that. It's the fact that the people believe that it works and they're, they're wearing it because they believe it works. And then they get all righteous about it. And actually, a lot of mask wearers do get very righteous about it. And it's yeah. all based on nonsense. That's my objection. If you mm. want to wear a mask, if you want to wear a tinfoil hat, if you want to wear your jumpers upside down, I don't care. But don't tell me that it's because of an evidence that I'm base. trying to say is that we maybe say to these people, well, you think this works. Mm. I don't think this works. We have to agree to disagree on that and you mm. can do it. But, I, but I'm not, you know, I bristle when I hear agree to disagree on some things because there's some things, like you might say that you think that my garden is the prettiest garden in the village and I would disagree with that. Well, the good news is I'm not going to proceed. It's not the prettiest <laughs> that's why we disagree the fact is it's not but there's things which are opinion and then there's things which are fact masks don't work yeah that's a fact so wear a mask by all means but don't tell me it works because it doesn't and no it's, and, I, and i think that's I, something that we've lost as a society yeah. we can't find facts any longer and no. lies have become truth and truth has become lies and yes. that's what's irritating about it you know i am a very liberal person People can wear whatever the hell they want, as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't care. But I do object to people thinking they're wearing a mask. They hate, they all, everybody hates wearing masks. And they think that they're doing it because it works and it doesn't work. 
yeah. they think that it's the right thing to go and get their child tested you know because they were sitting next to wee jimmy in a class who had has tested positive it's not the right thing that's the wrong thing to do to your child all of these things everything we're doing locking people in care homes you know, and not letting even, them see their families it's all wrong yeah it is wrong i agree so don't it's pretend wrong. it's right i'm not well, going to, the, to disagree is, isn't it, is that i think that because i think we've all had those conversations and been in those situations for the last year mm-hmm. i think that there comes a point doesn't there where and, and, it, and it is quite difficult it's really difficult actually it's like i was saying to you know kind of get a, a letter from my head teacher from my son's head teacher and it just includes like lines in it that are actually just not true like um masks are an important part of stuff in transmission yeah. it's just not true but i mean do i do i do I just that that isn't true, and I and I'm not accepting that. But also, at what point do you stop taking people on about every single thing? Because well, I still think I still if I get stuff from my school and it's got incorrect statements in it, I say that's not correct. I don't I don't really let any of these points pass. I'm not really fighting it. I'm just mm-hmm. each one. Out. I bat away and I don't go up to people in my school playground either I don't go to playgrounds anymore because fortunately my children are old enough to sit themselves home from school and um, I don't go up to people and say why have you got that mask on your face but when they're standing in the playground wearing a mask I'm thinking why have you got well, that mask on your yeah. face see I and, but then I, I also something I have noticed in the last I don't know and again I think it might be it may, it may well be different where you are because you've obviously got this resurgence of fear and, and a government crackdown coming. But, I thought you uh, said a surge I thought you said a sturgeon of fear. Well, so that would be very appropriate. Would, would we have a resurgence of fear and a sturgeon. A resurgence. A resurgence of fear. Yeah. I, okay. I, I, I sense though um you know when when so-called freedom day came in this country, I felt uncomfortable. I felt more uncomfortable not wearing a mask than I had when it was mandatory. Whereas, um, interestingly, in the last few weeks, I don't feel that anymore. I, I, you know, maybe this is part of what we're discussing, this kind of, maybe there is a, a, I hope there is, maybe there's a kind of a lessening that people are, can only feel frightened for so long. But I I don't feel judged anymore. There are people wearing masks, about 50-50 in my supermarket, Uh and there are people not wearing masks, but I don't. And you see, I'm fine fine with that, Zenobia. See those people walking around in your supermarket with a mask Mm -hmm. on? They would not bother me at all. Those are people who have chosen to Mm. wear a mask. Fine. What I really object to is that here we're still being coerced to wear a mask. We know it doesn't work. This makes me angry. We haven't had our Freedom Day and we we still have a resurgence. And it doesn't look like we're going to get a Freedom Day either you know they're, they're saying that we're going to be wearing masks well into 2022 and i'm just yeah. telling you right now i'm going to continue not wearing a mask throughout i i, I truly <laughs> i truly feel like the true export from china was not coronavirus it was communism yeah well and it's taken hold here in scotland i can tell you uh, it, it is. I mean, the yeah, reports north of the border are pretty terrifying. I think that's what. And yeah, obviously, <laughs> we we, we I, I sort of yeah. And it tends to be. We tend to go where Nicholas. You know, we tend to follow where Nicholas Sturgeon's been before. I'm hoping that's not the case. But um, uh, you know, if, and again, I'd be the same, Christine. If they if they bring masks back in, which they probably will, and I'll update it at some point in order to. And their argument will be it's to prevent lockdown. 
in the autumn. I'm not going to wear one either. I've never worn one, you know, not since last, you know, well, I didn't wear one. I don't only, only ever worn one in a healthcare setting. I've not worn one anywhere around the shops or anything. I'm not going to again. No. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, what, what I, I think what I have sensed here, and obviously you've not had the opportunity to see that because everyone's still being forced to do it, but I think there's a kind of acceptance. I don't think people are judging. I don't think people are noticing anymore, really, which I think is a bit weird. I mean, I well, noticed. I don't think they're, they're, they're noticing to judge. I definitely have always thought, I mean, my heart absolutely sank when they announced that they were mandating masks in Scotland because yeah. I just thought it was such a bad move. Well, it's just it weird, is, isn't it? but, yeah, because if we took our masks off, there would be no real signal of the pandemic at all. I mean, we've got a few friends around here who are ill with COVID just now, and they are quite unwell. And I've had it, we've had it in our house. It's not nice being sick with SARS-CoV-2, but, you know, you get over it and then you're fine. Or maybe and, you're not. And fine. just to say, I'm an afraid sitting duck. I'm still waiting for it. Still has <laughs> not been struck down yet. But um, <laughs> yeah, the masks thing is just such a psychological tool to make everyone scared all the time. And I knew that when the masks thing fell away in England, that that I, I thought that would be a great way to make the whole thing kind of unravel because. It was the one sort of daily ritual that people did that was very visible that reminded mm. you of all this trauma. Well, people have people have hold, hold hold on to them, haven't they? It's extraordinary. I mean, they have. Like I say, it depends where you are, and as many people have commented, it's a uh, you know there seems to be a socio-economic factor. When I go to Liverpool to my clinics in Liverpool, I, well, most of, actually, yes. Yeah, so, for example, yesterday uh, and last week. I didn't have a single family that came to see me wearing a mask in the NHS building, and none of, them, none of them were, and none of them were, um, you know, reminded to by staff, as far as I could see. Um, That's amazing. So, and, and, that sounds like a dream. Yeah, Liverpool, it does sound fantastic. Like a dream. It's, it's, like, it's like 2019 in Liverpool where I go. <laughs> it's very nice. But then where I live, but I guess I guess that this is it. It's, not, it's kind of just to go back to the fact of what we're talking about in terms of how do you live with the situation. I am aware, actually, just from your comments. Um, Sylvia and Christine, obviously, you're you're in a different situation to us at the moment, aren't you? I mean, you're we we I'm, I'm, we could I'm not suggesting with any sort of complacency that you know things are are okay here because I think we could very easily and very quickly march back in the opposite direction, and they probably will. But um, I think when I'm, the question I've been asking myself this summer, when you kind of realise this this for me been through you know, the fear that you felt, and then it's the question is, right, how do I live with this? How do I live with this? How do I accept it? How do I control the things that I can control and accept or object in ways, you know, like people have always done, you know, I think this is it. We've, li we've lived through very blessed times, haven't we? I think our, you know, people in this country generally for the last few generations, you know, we, we haven't known what it's like to live under real oppression. And you know, if you went to Eastern Europe, um, Russia, you, you know, people are either still living with it or they um, have very vivid memories of how you, how you live your life and how do you live a good life and how do you live a dignified life when you, are, when you have the boot of the state on your neck? And that, that's the question, isn't it? I think that's yeah. the question for all of us. Like how, that, that's what comes next, is how do we live good and dignified and meaningful lives when we're increasingly encroached 
in our freedoms and our ability to um, live truth by the state. And and sometimes that's a roller coaster, right? Because sometimes it's easier to live your best life in these six situations and then sometimes something happens where you are restricted and it's very difficult you know for Mm -hmm. me currently my mum's in a nursing home for respite care and sadly they've had a couple of positive cases so the lockdown the home's locked down so you know I can't get around that rule of not being allowed in to see her which is very very difficult And undignified. And undignified, because I'm a great believer in the human right to a family life. Of course. And and that's, yeah, and and there are limits, aren't there? Like you say, that is, that's that's the big question, because obviously there's certain things you can do, like you can choose not to wear a mask and face abuse in the street or whatever you want to do. But there are some things where you actually... Like that, that is one of the most important parts of your life, presumably. And, And you are being stopped by state mandate from from fulfilling your family life aren't and you? the question is why you know why are you being prevented from going into the care home it doesn't make any sense no and you know everybody in the care home has been vaccinated and that's as good as we're going to get and we know that the vaccine doesn't work and it makes things worse but like what is the end what what is the goal here like when are we going to say right okay we're just going to get back to normal and of course that's what people on the other side are expecting is going to happen one day and I'm just increasingly heartbroken to have to tell them that it's not going to happen one day no it's not there's no normal normal's gone normal died and um you know and there's a risk that some of us are going to have to live very undignified lives because you know, mm-hmm. our rights are going to be encroached on even more in the unvaccinated cohort. But you know, I I think I think to go back to the question we had around fear in the first place, and I think something I found I've stepped back, you know, a little bit, not not in a not in a sort of um, uh, not disconnecting, but just kind of for my own you know, to talk about this window of tolerance that we all need to get to in order to regulate my emotions and be in a a state where I can actually manage the information coming in and, mm-hmm. and, and operate in a way that's actually healthy for my family and my children. I've kind of become a little bit less involved in, in chats that I've been in, you know, online with other people who I, with whom I totally agree and share many opinions. But something which I think I've found really unhelpful is the kind of um, speculation, essentially, you know, fearful speculation about the future. Because even though you kind of have to have an eye on it and you can kind of see a pattern, and I think this is all about pattern recognition, isn't it? It's one of the, what you're talking about, sort of going back to normal. And it's been very weird, isn't it? Because I think those of us who see it, you can't really understand why people who should see it don't see it. But anyway, the point is, is I think speculating sort of on end days and sort of apocalyptic visions is not only pointless but completely unhelpful mm-hmm. and, and and you know it, yes it does look very gloomy but mm-hmm. got, you can only live with hope can't I still have hope I still have hope that if we can try and unify a bit more on our common ground I still have hope and I think I'm um, maybe I'm in a good place today I don't know but <laughs> um you know the, the point is these things do pass and it will wax and wane and we, we, we just 
sometimes have to acknowledge, okay, today the restrictions have really got me, but, you know, tomorrow's another day and we cross each bridge as it comes up. Mm-hmm. It is, and I think also there's a kind of not the, the idea of um, exceptionalism, is that the word? You know, that we, yes, this is extraordinary, these are extraordinary times, but many, many people throughout humanity, when we're talking about sort of unity and togetherness, I think maybe it's also helpful not just to think about the people are living now, but also throughout history, you know, people have, we've been very blessed. Yeah. Well, I certainly have been in my life. I, I, know, I, I think that's maybe, that's, that's why I feel sort of almost slightly embarrassed that it's been so traumatic, because I can't believe, I can't, you know, everything that I, it just made all the foundations of my understanding about my relationship with the state and, um, you know, our society and what liberal democracy is have been blown apart. Um, and, and I guess that that, comes, that has happened because at the age of 44, I've had my first experience of the state treating me in this way. And there are many, many people throughout yeah. you know, the world now and throughout our own society who've been less privileged than me, who have been um, you know, experiencing these things for, for many, many years. But throughout history, I mean, like I was saying, that kind of connection that you might have with people who live throughout Soviet Russia or Jews in Germany. I'm not you know, comparing my situation to, to that exactly, but what I'm saying is that the people do, to think that we are living through something completely unique is, is not true. I mean, it's, 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 it, people have found ways to, to, to live their lives and to live happy lives. And I think that's what we've got to find a way to get to, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course the trouble is that when you know about how lots of people have lived and how they've had freedom stolen from you it's quite difficult to watch it happening to yourself yeah well, no, I, I think i lived in some sort of extreme naivety where i thought the freedoms and the way we lived was there forever I, yeah. I didn't really think it was going to be threatened. I thought that people valued it I thought yeah. that like the medical profession and the judiciary and the media I thought all these these institutions valued that but, also but they don't really evolved and learned past lessons yeah no yeah. And no, it's, oh, it's suddenly like those lessons suddenly got forgotten. Yeah. Well, I agree with you, and it's that that's been the I think that's been the trauma. I think that's what I don't understand. Though. It's not just like the institutions, which I don't understand for the life of me. Why, you know, you you, you, you think that you've had a whole shared set of values with the people you train with and what have you, and then you realise that you just anyway I don't understand it. Oh, but um, it's the individuals too, because actually, so and this is what I've really struggled with. There's so many people I know who, like for example. Uh, as you know, they've read Solzhenitsyn, for example. They they, they know this. They they can recognise this pattern as much. You know, they've read the same stuff as me. They've been reading kind of awful things about. And I've got a slight obsession with kind of miserable Russian literature. But you know, I think that they've read this stuff. They've read this stuff too, and they don't. Why can't they see it? That's what I've I've not understood. It's like you can see this is a is, it, is it an ostrich effect? I, I wonder what was the point of them reading. I'm reading Alexander Solzhenitsyn as well, and oh, yeah. I don't really understand what the point would be in putting yourself through reading that if you weren't going to be able to notice read. the pattern. No, no, I, no, I, I don't either because that's the whole point, isn't it? The whole point mm-hmm. of his writing is exactly that, and it's a warning. And it's that, like that idea that yes, okay, like I mean, I'm talking about all these 
impositions and impressions that are on me. But basically, okay, my life is pretty much the same now as it was before. There's a few, well, there are quite a lot of differences, but, you know, it's fine. But it's more the knowledge of where this all can lead. And Mm. that's the danger. And this is, if we're ever going to stop it, like, this is the moment to stop it. Um, Yeah. And so it's that whole thing, well, I don't have any control over this, but I am actually going to do my very best yes. to make then, a difference. But there's a balance between yeah. doing your best to make a difference and driving yourself crazy. That, that's it. Doing. And I think, yeah. and I'm not saying I've, I've not reached the answer to that one. I'm just, I think, you know, um, I just, I was just finding actually whilst, whilst you were talking, do you remember, um, I, I don't know um, whether you remember this, Christy, but um, one of our colleagues posted a, quote by c.s lewis over the summer on a, on a chat that we were on did you read that it was about it was it was from an essay called on living in an atomic age yeah did you, do you remember it and it was just it can i read it just because i just yes, think it's yeah. such a, this this is actually such an important i was feeling really depressed at the time, when i got that you were feeling really depressed this is from an essay written by c.s lewis on living in, a, in an atomic age it was written in 1948 so three years after Hiroshima. And he says, um, in one way, we think a great too much about the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply, why? As you would live, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in the Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat at night, or indeed as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of rail accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all who you love are already sentenced to de- were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because scientists have added one more chance of a painful and premature death to a world which was already bristling with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes to us, find us, finds us, finds us doing something sensible and human. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, and a microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. I really like that quote. It's yeah. very nice. So much about, um, you know, our ability to cope and to lead, you know, worthwhile lives, I think, understanding that many, many people have before us. Yeah. That, my concern is that there is no uniqueness in this age. <laughs> that's my, that's always been my... Yes. No, you're right. And that's the problem, isn't it? But I think that people, when people are excessively fearful of COVID, they feel like they're living through a unique threat, which again, they're not. They've lived through this a similar, a, sim- a comparable level of threat every year in flu season mm. without thinking about it. Sylvia has to go. My battery's about to die. Yes. Here, and thank you so much. It was really nice chatting to you both. Time. Thank you so much. Happy to speak to you both. Yes, I hope to actually meet you in the flesh soon at some point. We nice. will, aren't we going to in October? Yeah, I hope so. That'd be really nice. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Okay. okay. Well, take care, Zenobia, and thank you so much for sharing all your thoughts today. And, and you too as well. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening. We are just enjoying these conversations so much and loving being back on track with Corona Stories. Lots of love and we'll see you very soon.